Um, so I um, have the great pleasure of introducing uh, Dr. Sarah Wakeman um, today. She's going to be our speaker. I think her ears have probably been burning over the last few weeks when we've um, discussed some challenging cases um, at our M&M conference uh, involving patients with tragic consequences of opioid addiction. And in the course of those discussions, her interventions to improve the care for similar patients have, um, have come up and have been cited as really the gold standard. So, um, so it's great to have her here today to talk, talk with us about that. Um, she received her bachelor's degree from Brown University and her MD from Brown Medical School, completed residency training in internal medicine, and served as chief medical resident at Massachusetts General Hospital, where she has continued her career. She's currently an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and holds multiple leadership roles in her clinical specialty of addiction medicine at MGH, including serving as the medical director of the Substance Use Disorder Initiative and Addiction Consult Team, co-chair of the Opioid Task Force, clinical lead for the Partners Healthcare Substance Use Disorder Initiative, and program director of MGH's Addiction Medicine Fellowship. She was appointed by Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker to serve on his Opioid Addiction Working Group, and she serves as secretary for the Massachusetts Society of Addiction Medicine and chair of that organization's policy committee. In addition to implementing and leading system changes to improve care, Dr. Wakeman studies the impact of these interventions and seeks to understand predictors of successful treatment for opioid use disorders. Her research also assesses physician attitudes and trainee preparedness to evaluate and treat patients suffering with addiction. Dr. Wakeman is a leader, an innovator, and a teacher who has delivered numerous workshops, symposia, and invited lectures across the country, and published her original research, reviews, and perspectives in some of the highest impact journals in medicine. She's a startlingly pro prolific writer, and it's clear from the body of her work that she is passionate and dedicated to addressing a problem in a population that has so often been neglected in the past. And I'm very pleased to welcome her today to teach us and to inspire us at Medicine Grand Rounds. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for that really generous uh, welcome. I'm thrilled to be here this morning, negative four degrees and all. Um, it was a, a beautiful, slightly dark drive from Boston, but um, gorgeous to watch the dawn come um, over uh, New Hampshire. So I'm going to talk today about the opioid crisis and really about the role of healthcare providers and health systems in responding to this public health crisis. So I have no disclosures. Um, so I hope that in our time together, um, you'll leave here understanding that opioid use disorder is a chronic but very treatable illness, um, that there's effective treatment, and that you'll have a sense of what that looks like for opioid use disorder. And then I'll share with you our, um, our journey at Mass General to really begin to think about this transformation in healthcare systems as an example of how we can um, think about meeting our patients and delivering effective treatment um, within the, the medical system where we care for all other illnesses. So I think it's probably not news to you if you um, read the paper or listen to the radio or um, are simply a member of society that we're in the midst of a public health crisis. And drug overdose is actually now the leading cause of death for all Americans under age 50. And this is a startling figure from the New York Times showing that overdose deaths have surpassed the peak number of deaths per year from car accidents, the peak number of deaths per year from gun violence, and the peak number of deaths per year from HIV at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. So in fact, more Americans have now lost their lives to overdose than all Americans to HIV AIDS since the beginning of the HIV epidemic. 
And while we often think of sort of the young, healthy person who dies tragically and prematurely, and, and I think those are some of the saddest deaths, in part because, again, opioid use disorder is a treatable condition, but really death is increasing for almost all ages. So you'll see here that actually the... the um, the slope of the curve is greatest for the 55 to 64-year-old age range, but even 65 and over, there's been an increase in overdose death. And there's been a lot of focus on opioid prescribing. I'm sure that's not news to you guys. It's certainly um, an area of focus in Massachusetts and across the country. And the reason for that really is this strong correlation when we look at the onset of the current crisis of opioid-related death and changes in prescribing patterns. So beginning in the late 1990s, now a very well-known story that um, our prescribing practices shifted dramatically due to a number of, of factors that um, happened around the same time. The Institute of Medicine report about undertreating pain um, um, the pharmaceutical lobbying around medications like OxyContin and some um, perhaps misleading uh, uh, education or communication around the risk of those medications. And then things like the Joint Commission focusing on pain, pain becoming the fifth vital sign, and really um, shifts in how we thought about prescribing um, that you can see really there's this dramatic uptick in licit uh, sales of opioids, which means really prescribing. So that would be... Um, this dash line here. And in correlation with that, we saw basically in parallel a rise in opioid pain reliever related death and treatment admissions for prescription opioid use disorder. So when we think about the onset of the current crisis, certainly prescribing played a role. But I think when we talk about what are people dying from right now, it's not prescription opioids. So actually our prescribing practices began decreasing around 2012. So all of the important attention around responsible opioid prescribing and managing pain but doing so in a balanced way have had a significant impact. In, in Massachusetts, we've seen a 29% decrease in opioid prescribing. Um, and you can see that around 2011, actually, deaths due to prescription opioids plateaued and then began to decrease. And yet we've seen this dramatic increase in deaths due to illicit opioids, namely heroin and fentanyl. And right now, it's really fentanyl. So this is a, a piece from JAMA published two months ago showing the, um, the rapid increase of fentanyl in the drug supply. And so I think it's important to tease apart that what, what started the crisis and what sustained the crisis of deaths are two separate things. And sometimes um, we look for sort of a simple solution. There's that old saying that for every complex problem, there's a simple solution that's wrong. Um, and so I think there's been a strong focus on, we'll just stop prescribing. If doctors uh, just don't prescribe opioids, then we're going to solve this crisis. And unfortunately, when you have um, that sort of narrow focus on simply the supply side, if you think of the pool of people who actually have the chronic illness of opioid use disorder, simply making it hard for them to find oxycodone or to find um, hydrocodone is not going to cure their chronic illness. They're just going to shift to whatever they are able to find. And increasingly, that's heroin and, and predominantly fentanyl. And I'll say it's been about six months since I've seen a heroin-positive toxicology that it's basically all fentanyl, regardless of what people think they're using. And so you take someone who may have addiction and may be misusing a prescription opioid, but it's a stable product. They know how much they're getting with every episode of use. And you shift them into the illicit drug market, where it's a game of Russian roulette. And every day is a day that someone could die. Every episode of use is a time that someone could die. Um, just to illustrate that, I saw a young man um, yesterday who experienced two overdoses the day before. Both times EMS was called, both times he received naloxone. He came in with his ribs bruised from, from CPR, and he said he'd bought 
um, what he thought was heroin from a new dealer. He used half a bag, um, and he immediately went out. He's never gone out after such a small amount. And so then he got Narcan. He was acutely in withdrawal. He was sick. The first thing he's thinking is, how can I get comfortable again? So he thought, well, I'll use just a quarter of the bag and immediately overdosed again. So that's literally the experience of people right now who are out there using. And so again, I think in the game of sort of whack-a-mole, if all we focus on is making certain types of opioids harder to access, and this is a, a concerning paper from um, October of this year showing a uh, self-reported first opioid that people use who are presenting their treatments. You can see that back in 2005, uh, Where's my pointer? As expected, oxycodone and hydrocodone are the number one. Heroin's all the way down here, so very few people are starting with heroin. And then you flash forward to 2015, and all of a sudden heroin is the most common opioid that people are first initiating. Um, so again, I think supply-side focus is important for long-term prevention strategies, but what we'll focus on mostly today is how do you actually stop the death toll and treat people who have the illness of opioid use disorder? So we talk a lot about deaths. Obviously, deaths are the worst possible outcome, but I'm sitting where I sit in a general hospital and working in a community health center, and I'm sure for you guys as well, we see a lot of people who come in with severe medical complications of untreated opioid use disorder who don't die. So people who have near-fatal overdoses, who have endocarditis due to injection drug use, who have decompensated cirrhosis from hepatitis C. And we've seen across the country a rise in opioid-related inpatient hospitalizations and opioid-related emergency department visits. The impact of this crisis on mortality has been startling. So, and this is a now very famous paper by Case and Deaton in 2015, um, where they looked at the mortality rate for um, different ethnic groups within the U.S. and then compared to other uh, developed countries. And you can see, as we would sort of expect, as medicine has gotten better over the past uh, several decades, mortality rates have gone down for uh, most countries. So, France, Germany, the U.K., Canada, Australia, Sweden, and for most ethnic groups in the U.S., except for U.S. non-Hispanic whites. So that red line is U.S. non-Hispanic whites, and you can see that actually the death toll has gone up. And so um, nothing really has done this in modern times other than HIV, where we've actually changed the mortality curve of Americans because of this crisis. And when you look at what is causing people to die in, in these rising mortality rates, these have been called the so-called deaths of despair. So the number one cause is poisoning, meaning overdose. But rising as well are suicide and then chronic liver disease, which is often associated with substance use disorder. So I think really startling as we think about the impact of that across the country. We focus a lot um, now on calling this a public health crisis, and I think it's important to talk a little bit about our um, racialized approach to uh, drugs and drug policy in this country, that when we had a crisis of cocaine use disorder in the, in the 80s and 90s, we were not responding with compassion and with medical care. We were responding with the war on drugs and with incarceration. And um, a lot of people have talked about how now that it's affecting white people and sort of affluent people, there's a very different tenor to how we're thinking about substance use disorder and, and responding to that. And on the one hand, that's great. As a society, we are beginning to think about this as an illness, that it is. But it's also important to note that, that um, why that wasn't always the case. And also that opioids are not the only issues. This is a paper that was in Annals actually last week, December 5th. There was a research letter that looked at rates of overdose due to cocaine, well, due to all substances, in um, various ethnic groups. At the top, you see top left is non-Hispanic black men, and next to that is non-Hispanic black women. And 
you can see actually that as many um, in rates, uh, that as many non-Hispanic black men and women are dying from cocaine-related overdoses as non-Hispanic white men and women are dying from opioids. So part of that is because actually the cocaine supply right now is contaminated with fentanyl, so people are using what they think is cocaine and dying from overdose. But it's important to not focus just on one molecule, but rather to think about sort of the global impact of substance use disorder and addiction on all people across the country. So as I sort of think about how we as healthcare providers can respond to this, um, I think, you know, one tool we have is science, and that's an incredibly powerful tool and a way to sort of um, cut through some of the emotion that surrounds substance use disorder in particular. This is a wonderful perspective piece in the New England Journal by Dr. Volkow, who's the head of NIDA, and Dr. Collins, who's the head of NIH. And they comment on the fact that um, throughout uh, our history, when we've had a public health crisis, we really turn to science to respond to it, and that responding to the opioid crisis effectively will be no different. And actually, I think I often compare the current crisis of opioid-related deaths to HIV, and I think there are a lot of parallels. But unlike with the HIV epidemic, where we had to wait for science to catch up, we had to wait for medications to be discovered for new biomedical breakthroughs, the funny thing with addiction is we actually have about 50 years of science showing us what works, and the gap has really been in implementing those practices um, into our clinical systems and into the care people get. So before we talk about solutions, I think it's useful to step back and talk about what is addiction. Um, I think narrative is always a powerful lens through which to understand um, any illness, but substance use disorder in particular. And this is actually an old quote from 1953 uh, from William Burroughs' pseudo-memoir called Junkie about his own experience with heroin addiction. And he really wrestles with the question that I think we still struggle with, the sort of why does this happen to some people and not others? And as Burroughs describes, people try using drugs for a variety of reasons, 90% of them Americans experiment with drugs or alcohol in their life. Um, so there's some element of choice that 90% of us make. But then for some minority of people who have the unfortunate combination of genetic risk and environmental risk who are vulnerable to addiction, there's this um, uh, unanticipated transition from recreational use into addiction. And Burroughs describes sort of using out of curiosity, drifting along, using recreationally, and then one day waking up in withdrawal and realizing that something was different. And I often hear this from young people who the first time they experience opioid withdrawal, they think they have the flu. They have no idea what's wrong. It's often a friend who tells them, oh, wait, you're dope sick. There's something that's different here. And so um, this narrative, I think, still rings true even uh, uh, many decades later. And what Burroughs describes is what we now know as the natural history of opioid use disorder. And so this is sort of simplified, but I think it's important to recognize um, some of these changes, that early on people use drugs to feel good. That may sound sort of um, simplistic, but we sometimes forget that drugs make people feel good and that they wouldn't use drugs if there weren't some positive benefit to it. And in fact, opioids don't make everyone feel good. So some people feel nauseous and itchy and sort of dysphoric, and those individuals are probably protected from developing an opioid use disorder. But if you talk to someone with, a, with an opioid use disorder about their first exposure to opioids, people will often use language like it felt like falling in love or it felt like being in a warm bath or being embraced in a warm hug, that these sort of almost mystical, magical descriptions of what it felt like the first time those receptors were, were um, stimulated by an opioid. And yet what happens is we see this shift in individuals who are vulnerable from using to feel good to then needing to use to feel normal and then needing to use to just not get sick. And so I think that's a fundamentally important piece to understand, particularly when we think about treatment, because many people with severe long-standing opioid use disorder don't feel normal. They're not able to function unless they have an opioid in their system. And so they get caught in this terrible rat race of every day. Um, studies have shown about 80% of people's waking hours are spent trying to find and consume opioids just to feel normal and just to not feel sick. 
And so put another way, again, a quote by someone um, with lived experience, when you can stop, so early on, before you've developed a substance use disorder, you don't necessarily want to because you're not having problems or negative consequences from your use. And then when you want to stop, when terrible things start happening in your life, you can't because something has changed. So we now understand addiction is really this um, combination and this relationship between genes, environment, and development. So genes are about 50% of the equation, so 40 to 60% of any one person's risk of developing addiction is based on their genetics. And then environmental exposures, so things like early childhood trauma, co-occurring mental health disorders, um, early exposure to substances, being around peers who are using drugs. So it's I think of it as very similar to sort of diabetes or heart disease, where genes and biology are about half the equation, and then lifestyle and exposure or the other half. So imagine someone with a strong family history of early MI. Um, that's going to obviously increase their risk, but then their diet, their exercise, whether or not they smoke, all of those things are going to play a role as well. And then obviously you have to be exposed to drugs or alcohol to actually develop a substance use disorder. And then we now know that using drugs and alcohol actually changes the brain structure and function. So, um, so in addition to sort of the risk of developing addiction, then ongoing use, we see actually change neurobiology. And so addiction is defined as a primary chronic brain disease that's characterized by compulsive drug use or alcohol use despite harm. And so there's a couple important pieces embedded in that. So first, this is a chronic illness. So for most people, the goal is not cure. Cure is not a realistic expectation, but rather remission. So just like we think about diabetes, hypertension, asthma, we're trying to get people on treatment and keep them from having symptoms of active disease. And then it's fundamentally defined by irrational behavior. And I think that's the piece that's really hard for caregivers for family members, for the public to wrap their head around, that the definition of addiction is compulsively using drugs despite bad things happening to you. And so if you think about our approach as a society where we've tried for 100 years to make more bad things happen to people with the idea that that's going to help them get well, right? So families are told that they should kick their kids out of their house, this sort of tough love approach that people have to hit bottom. We've tried to incarcerate our way out of addiction. And yet if you think about that definition of addiction, that even despite overdoses and getting hepatitis see and losing your job and having your family upset with you, you continue to compulsively use drugs, and that is the hallmark of the illness. So I think that piece is just really, really crucial um, to understand, and we'll talk about some of the neurobiology for why that is. And then again, because this is a chronic illness, relapse or recurrence of symptoms is part of the course. And so just like with diabetes, if someone's A1C increases, we're going to change their treatment plan. We might modify their medications. We might talk to them about making behavior change around their diet or exercise. Um, but we would never sort of say the patient failed treatment. We would think about how can we modify treatment to meet the needs of the patient. And then we talked about the, um, the strong genetic correlation. And so using functional imaging, we can now see that there are many parallels between substance use disorder and other chronic illnesses. So if you think about heart disease, so on the left you see functional imaging of myocardium, you see sort of good metabolism throughout the heart muscle, and then next to it you see the heart of someone who's had a large MI, and you see the area of scar that's no longer metabolically active, and so that injury leads to the chronic illness that we recognize as congestive heart failure. And so next to it you see functional imaging looking at the brain of someone, first a normal brain on the, on the left where you can see the brightest part of the brain are our frontal lobes, particularly our prefrontal cortex. So that's the part of our brain that allows us to weigh risk and benefit and to think about consequence and delayed gratification and to sort of put the brakes on the deeper sort of um, reward-driven circuitry in our brain, the kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll parts of our brain. Um, and interestingly, it takes until about age 26 for 
for your frontal lobes to be fully developed. It's one reason why teenagers can act so irrationally. It's also why um, young people are much more vulnerable if they start using substances early. And then next, you're using the brain of someone with a substance use disorder, in this case with cocaine use disorder. And you can see the diminished metabolism in their prefrontal cortex. So again, there's this imbalance. It's almost like the foot's on the gas pedal and the brakes have stopped working. You think about that sort of image for someone who has active, untreated substance use disorder. And so asking that person to sort of willfully choose to not use drugs any longer, um, in many ways, would be like asking the person with a the heart there to just have their EF improve. You know, you can't willfully choose for something to change in your biology when there's been a fundamental structural change in, in your ability to function. And yet the great news with substance use disorder is that many changes do remit. So unlike a stroke or unlike a heart attack, we actually do see a lot of functional recovery with ongoing treatment. So this is actually um, now looking at methamphetamine use disorder. And you can see, again, we're looking at dopamine transporters now, healthy brain, brain in the middle, diminished function. And then the brain on the right is someone who's been in recovery. In this study, it took 14 months for those brain changes to begin to normalize. And the brain in the middle is actually someone who's been sober for one month. So if you think about our treatment system, where we've, we've spent a long time and a lot of money designing a system that approaches addiction as if it's a, an acute process, that you can send someone away to detox for a week or to rehab for 30 days, and they're going to get better, and they're, they'll be fine, and you just send them back home again. And yet you see the brain in the middle is the brain of someone who's been sober for one month. And so there's been this fundamental mismatch between how we've tried to approach treatment with acute episodic bursts of care that often are not always based in science, and what we know about the illness, that this is a chronic illness that requires long-term ongoing follow-up. But if we begin to shift our framework and think of this as a chronic illness, this is a good prognosis illness. So our treatment outcomes for substance use disorder are as good, if not better, than for other chronic conditions. If you think about hypertension, we would expect people's blood pressure to be high before we start treatment. With treatment, most people have a response, and if you all of a sudden stop people's treatment, you'd think their blood pressure is probably going to go up again. Um, with addiction, we see the same thing. So with good treatment, about 40 to 60% of people will be in remission at one year. And if you stop treatment prematurely, a significant number of them are going to have a relapse. So I think most of it is really around frame shift and sort of our understanding shift rather than, um, than a failure of the, of the illness. So what is effective treatment? Well, for opioid use disorder in particular, but um, for, for many substance use disorders, opioid, alcohol, and tobacco, we have medications that are highly effective. And then we have effective psychosocial interventions. And treatment usually involves some combination or one or the other of those. And then recovery supports, which I think often um, the public's very familiar with. We think of things like AA or NA, 12-step groups. It's important to note those are not formal treatment, just like um, a diabetes support group or a cancer support group is not treatment, but can be a crucial component of people's ongoing recovery and wellness. Um, but simply referring someone to AI would not be an evidence-based kind of intervention for the chronic disease of alcohol use disorder. With opioid use disorder, we have three FDA-approved medications that we'll talk through. We have methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. And then in terms of the psychosocial interventions, um, it's important to note that effective strategies, particularly early on, are either skills-based, meaning teaching people the skills to um, identify situations that are going to be high-risk situations and how to manage stress and, um, and cope with triggers without using substances, or they're motivation-based, so really resolving the natural ambivalence that people have around engaging with treatment or stopping use. So this isn't lying on the couch talking about your childhood. It's not psychodynamic therapy. It's really skills-based, motivation-based, 
or incentive-based. So one of the most effective strategies actually in substance use disorder is something called contingency management, where you reward people for, for good behavior. So you reward them for coming to appointments, you reward them for, for appropriate toxicology. So in studies, that's often done with gift cards or with vouchers for that support sort of a healthy lifestyle. We often do the opposite. We try to punish people for bad behavior, which doesn't work as well as rewarding people for good behavior. So again, um, as an internist, I think of opioid use disorder as very similar to diabetes. So there's no cure, but with diabetes, our goal is to normalize someone's blood sugar and to prevent both the acute complications like DKA and the chronic complications like end-stage renal disease and others. And with opioid use disorder, our goal is to help people stop using opioids and then to prevent, again, both acute and chronic complications, prevent overdose, prevent hepatitis C, prevent infections due to injection drug use. And with diabetes, although we have decades of science showing us what evidence-based treatment looks like and what are appropriate treatment targets, we then individualize that care to the person in front of us. So if I see a patient, you know, with an A1C of 14 who I really think should start insulin and they tell me they're terrified of needles or they're homeless and they don't have a refrigerator to keep insulin cold in, I wouldn't not offer them that form and if they were willing to start there. I would sort of meet the person where they are and continue to partner with them on a pathway towards health. And yet with addiction, unfortunately, it's often made to be sort of all or nothing. Um, many people have seen the show Intervention. This is often people's, you know, sort of image of what it looks like. You sort of tell someone, well, this is your choice and if you don't want to take what's offered to you, then you're not ready or you're not motivated. It's somehow your fault. Rather than really engaging people in and having patient-centered care that's really based on the individual and guided by science. And then again, with diabetes, we think about treatment tailored to a person's clinical course and their preferences and involving some combination of medication and lifestyle change, behavioral support, and ongoing follow-up. So not everyone needs all of those things, but um, many people need some combination of those things. And then the ongoing follow-up is crucial. So we would never start insulin, send someone away with a 30-day prescription and not see them again. We would continue to follow them because it's a long-term um, care plan and it's a chronic illness. And so again, getting back to effective treatment for opioid use disorder, when we think about the current crisis of deaths where, um, while uh, I'm up here and when I, by the time I get back at the end of the day to Massachusetts, six people will have died across the state of Massachusetts. Today in the U.S., probably 140 people are going to die from an overdose. So if you think about how to immediately stop the death toll, the single most important thing we have is medication treatment. And I'll talk to you a little bit about the evidence for that. So briefly, just a review of the pharmacology of the three medications we have available in the U.S. So the first is methadone, which is a full opioid agonist, meaning it binds to the opioid receptor, um, and the more you take, the more effect you get. So that means it's very effective. It has a very long half-life, so you can dose it once a day. And the goal is to get people back to a stable level where they feel normal. So think of it as sort of the glargine of opioid use disorder treatment, that you want to sort of get someone back to a normal functional level. The downside of methadone is that because it's a full agonist, at very high doses, you can have side effects. You can have sedation. Um, you can, of course, have overdose, uh, hypogonadism, constipation many of the side effects we think about with opioids. And one of the other challenges with methadone is how our country has regulated methadone, where we haven't really changed our guidelines since 1974. And so there's a lot of um, strict criteria around how people are able to get methadone in this country. That being said, methadone is the gold standard of treatment. We have 60 years worth of data. It's one of the most effective medicines in medicine. Um, and I'll tell you about some of the evidence for that. Buprenorphine is a newer agent. It was approved in the early 2000s. And it's a partial opioid agonist, meaning it sticks to the opioid 
receptors, it activates them, but it has a partial effect. So at a max dose of somewhere around 32 milligrams, there's a ceiling effect. So even if someone took 20 more tablets, they wouldn't get more effect. That means it's very safe. It's basically impossible to overdose on buprenorphine alone. Um, and because it has a very high binding affinity, um, it sticks very tightly to those receptors. So if someone tries to use heroin on top of buprenorphine, they don't get any effect. So you'll often hear people say it's a blocker. It's not really, or it's, a, it's a partial blocker. It's not really a blocker. It's just that it has such a high binding affinity. Um, it prevents people from having other opioid effects. Um, because of its safety profile, and um, it was approved for office-based addiction treatment with um, the passage of the Drug Addiction Treatment Act in 2000. And the idea was we're going to revolutionize addiction care and bring addiction treatment back into the doctor's office um, so patients can get their treatment the same way they do for other health conditions. And unfortunately, that hasn't quite come to fruition. I'll talk to you a little bit about that. And then our third medication is naltrexone, which is a pure antagonist, meaning it sticks to the receptors. It doesn't activate them at all, but it functions kind of like a security guard. It just keeps other opioids from being able to have an effect. And so Opioid agonists, by which I mean methadone or buprenorphine, it's important to note that the goal is that someone looks and feels normal. So someone who's on an appropriate dose of methadone or buprenorphine, most, most of the time you can't tell that they're on that medication. So they should seem normal, they should feel normal, they shouldn't be intoxicated or over-sedated, um, and they shouldn't be having withdrawal or craving. That that's really the goal is kind of restoring homeostasis. So again, thinking about sort of other endocrine problems, so hypothyroidism, adrenal insufficiency, hypogonadism, diabetes, this is what we do. We use a chemically similar molecule to get someone back to a normal level of functioning, and that's really the goal of these medications. Yep? Yeah, when you talk about patients on these levels of I get this question every time, and no one's done this study, which is always surprising to me. What has been looked at, so another um, change that we see in people with chronic opioid use disorder, like heroin use disorder, is we see changes in their HPA axis, and it's thought that actually a lot of, the, a lot of relapse is due to sort of stress-induced relapse, that people are in this hyper-cortisol state. And so um, there's been studies looking at the, the changes that happen when people are in long-term methadone or buprenorphine, that you actually see those, um, those HPA axis changes normalized. So that sort of has been done out of New York. That's the one kind of um, normalized uh, study that we've seen. That being said, in terms of functional studies or cognitive studies, people seem to achieve totally normal functioning. So the other thing to take away as we talk about effective treatment is what is ineffective treatment. So despite um, uh, many, many studies, we continue to hear people talk about detox and about how we need more beds. Um, and yet there's never been a study that's shown that detox is an effective intervention for opioid use disorder. So this is one of many studies. This one's done out of Hopkins looking at inpatient detoxification for opioid use disorder and showing at the end of 30 days after someone leaves detox, 80% of people report having relapsed opioid use disorder. So um, relapse is expected almost immediately after someone completes detox. Uh, and unfortunately, because you've removed someone's opioid tolerance, their risk of death goes up dramatically. So one of the scariest moments is the moment someone walks out of the door from detox or from prison or from the hospital if they've had a period of enforced opioid abstinence or an opioid taper because their tolerance is gone without actually treating the underlying opioid use disorder. So what is effective treatment? So I think if we knew that there was um, a study showing that there are two treatment strategies, so in treatment A, um, individuals randomized to this arm, 75% were in remission at the end of one year, and no one died. Treatment B, um, no one was in remission, and 20% were dead at the end of one year. So if we had those sort of outcomes for cardiology or for cancer, we probably wouldn't continue to recommend treatment B. And yet this is a 2003 study in The Lancet looking at randomization of buprenorphine maintenance for a year with psychosocial intervention compared to detoxification. And indeed, no one um, stayed sober with detox, and 20% were dead by the end of the year. 
There's been many, many studies looking at the benefit of opioid agonist therapy. Early on, people thought, well, maybe it's just that short-term detox doesn't work. So maybe people just need really long detox. So this actually was a 180-day-long detox. This is a randomized control trial in JAMA, comparing 180-day-long methadone detox with psychosocial treatment to methadone maintenance treatment, meaning staying on the medication plus psychosocial treatment. And you can see that basically as the medication begins being tapered, people rapidly start falling out of care. And when the medication stops at 180 days, people just fall off a cliff. Um, whereas with methadone, even out to close to a year, almost 80% of people are still retained in treatment. And then when the medication stopped at the end of the trial, people predictably fell out of care. This is a Cochrane review looking at methadone treatment versus um, non-methadone treatment, so pulling together studies that had other forms, usually behavioral treatment, and found that um, patients treated with methadone are 44% less likely to use opioids than any other type of treatment. So um, again, one of many um, many studies looking at this. But perhaps the most important research that's been done on agonist therapy when we think about the current crisis is the impact on mortality. And this is a, a study in the BMJ published this year in 2017 that was um, a pooled meta-analysis that pooled um, methadone treatment studies and buprenorphine studies. In the buprenorphine studies, there are about 15,000 patients. Methadone is even higher. And found that being in treatment dramatically reduces your mortality rate. So we've seen this again and again in numerous studies. Um, in the methadone arm, all-cause mortality was reduced threefold, and overdose mortality was reduced sixfold. In the country of France, where you don't need a special waiver to prescribe buprenorphine, they've been able to get 90,000 patients treated in less than a decade and saw their heroin overdose death rate drop by 80%. So on an individual level, the World Health Organization estimates that a person's risk of dying drops 90% if they take one of these medications. So I always think any day that my patient takes their Suboxone is a day they won't die. It's literally that simple. So when we want to keep people alive in the midst of this crisis, medication plays a crucial role. The other thing we know is that relapse in cost is reduced significantly in patients on medication treatment compared to behavioral treatment. This is a Medicaid study in Massachusetts that compared people who went to behavioral treatment, meaning psychosocial counseling or, or residential rehab, to patients on medication and found that those on medication had a 50% lower relapse rate and that their health care costs were reduced dramatically, $150 to $220 per member per month um, over the course of treatment. And then more recently, there's been um, uh, growing studies looking at naltrexone, particularly extended-release naltrexone. So just sort of brief overview. So naltrexone, I think, conceptually... Um, People, the public, lawmakers in, general, in particular, really love the idea of it because it's a blocker. Um, one of the greatest stumbling blocks of agonist therapy, and we'll talk about it, is a lot of stigma and sort of um, misunderstanding and inability to get over this idea that you're giving a drug to treat drug addiction. People have a really hard time with that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And so naltrexone is sort of this perfect, conceptually it's perfect. You just give someone a blocker and then they won't use anymore. But again, if you think of that idea that people are, their sort of homeostasis is shifted where they don't feel normal without an opioid in their system, simply blocking their ability to get high um, is not going to treat that sort of um, feeling of not being normal, not being okay. And so most of the research on naltrexone has shown that um, while people take it, they do okay, but unfortunately adherence is terrible. So oral naltrexone basically is no better than placebo. Extended release naltrexone is better than placebo, so that's good. <laughs> um, it's been studied mostly in Russia where uh, methadone and buprenorphine aren't available, and so there are a fair number of criticisms of those studies uh, in terms of generalizability to the U.S. We 
just had our first ever head-to-head -head comparison of buprenorphine compared to extended-release naltrexone in the U.S. called the XBOT study that got widely picked up by the press. You may have heard of it. It was published in The Lancet last month. And so basically, they took people who voluntarily went to inpatient detox and were willing to be randomized, and then they randomized them to buprenorphine versus naltrexone. And so in the intention-to-treat analysis, so taking all comers, you can see that um, fewer patients relapse on buprenorphine, that the average number of opioid-free weeks on buprenorphine was 10 compared to 4 in the, in the naltrexone group, and that the number of abstinence days was 81 compared to 39 in the naltrexone group. This was not what got reported in the press. This is um, The press has not done a great job of reporting on the crisis in general, but um, in the paper, the authors then report a per-protocol analysis. So basically, um, instead of reporting on the intent-to-treat analysis, the per-protocol analysis was just people who actually got the medication. So again, that big stumbling block to naltrexone is people actually taking it. So many people just aren't retained in treatment. So if you only look at people who actually get the medication, people seem to do as well as buprenorphine. But that's a huge if. There's a, a, the, um, a substantial number of people who fall out of care before they ever get to that point. So important tool to have in the toolbox, but for all comers, agonist therapy still appears to be um, the best option that we have. And yet, despite everything I've just shown you in, um, in a rapid review of, of our uh, science on opioid use disorder treatment, there's this huge gap between what the science shows and what um, we believe as clinicians, what the public believes, what policymakers believe. And I think it really gets to that deep stigma and sort of our history as a country with addiction and, and treatment. And um, if you think about it, we have spent 100 years sending people to prison and criminalizing drug use disorder. And um, despite the fact that we've begun changing our language and thinking about this as a public health crisis, it's really hard to undo those notions that we've all, certainly I was brought up with the idea that people are, you know, willfully choosing to do this and that addiction is kind of bad behavior. And yeah, yeah, maybe people are sick, but really they should just knock it off and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get better. And I think that continues to influence our policy. And despite the fact that there's never been a study that's shown that detox is an effective strategy, we continue to promote it as treatment. Clinicians promote it as treatment and certainly policymakers promote it as treatment. And so what is clear is that medications for addiction treatment work. This was um, the first ever Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health published last year by Vivek Murthy. And he comments on the fact that the, the science and the, the consensus within the scientific community is absolutely clear that these are important tools in treatment, that they're as effective as medications for other illnesses. And yet, despite that, there continues to be some um, really stigmatizing notions about this idea that you're just substituting one drug for another or that people are just addicted to methadone. If you think back to that definition of addiction, which is defined as compulsively using a drug despite bad things happening to you, taking a medication daily that's prescribed by a doctor that allows you to function normally and work and have relationships and not die from overdose and not get hepatitis C does not meet the definition of addiction. It meets the definition of chronic disease management. It's what many Americans do to manage their illness is they take a medication daily that allows them to function. Um, so I think getting over those stigmatizing views are one of the greatest challenges we have. Um, other countries, I think it's not, uh, there's very different perspectives. The World Health Organization in 2009, now almost a decade ago, published uh, these guidelines for the treatment of opioid use disorder. And interesting, I'm a big fan of language. And uh, we, in this country, talk a lot about medical, medication-assisted treatment. It's never been totally clear to me what the medication is assisting, but some magical treatment that's happening, um, when really the evidence is very clear that medications are a cornerstone of treatment and are incredibly effective. So we don't talk about insulin-assisted therapy or 
you know, um, lisinopril-assisted blood pressure care. And so actually the World Health Organization chose to title their guidelines psychosocially-assisted pharmacotherapy, that really medication is a cornerstone and that all people should have access to psychosocial treatment. But if someone isn't interested in it, we shouldn't withhold life-saving medication. So using the diabetes metaphor, I would love for all my patients to talk to a nutritionist and meet with our diabetes nurse educator, and their disease control would absolutely be better if they did those things. But if they aren't willing to do that, I don't withhold their insulin. I don't make that a condition of, of, of medication treatment. The other thing I think is as challenging is this notion of long-term treatment, that with most illnesses, we celebrate long-term treatment as a sign of success and sort of patient engagement. And yet with um, medication treatment and addiction, there's often concern about long-term treatment, that that somehow is a failure. I spoke to someone yesterday who was talking about seeing the same people at, at a methadone clinic who'd been there years before and was saying that in this sort of disparaging way, like, well, that's not effective. And well, no, that's actually a great thing. Like, kudos to them that they've been engaged in treatment for five years and been abstinent and taking their medication. We should be supporting Supporting that and encouraging that. And that's not to say that everyone needs to stay on medication. Many people successfully taper off. But whether or not someone stays on medication is sort of irrelevant. What matters is, is their disease under control? How's the quality of their life? Are they a socially productive member of society? Are they having meaningful relationships? Are they staying alive, et cetera? The other thing we know is that long-term outcomes are very positive. So this is a 42-month-long study. This is a multi-site study across the country um, where there was an initial randomized control trial comparing buprenorphine with and without psychosocial treatment, one of many studies that hasn't shown benefit of the addition of psychosocial treatment on top of medication management alone. But they then enrolled half the sample and followed them for 42 months. So this is one of the longest studies we have on buprenorphine and found at, at month 42, only 8% of people still met criteria for opioid use disorder. So 92% of people in remission. I think that's something we don't talk about enough is that this is a treatable, good prognosis disease. And, um, you know, I'm always surprised when I talk to trainees and tell them I do addiction medicine, I'll get these like, oh, that must be so depressing or it must be so sad all the time. And it's like, no, like there are very few things in primary care where we see people get better. This is like a Lazarus-like effect. You take someone who has their whole life ahead of them and they're desperately ill and essentially a death's door and you treat them and they get better and they go on and they parent and they have jobs and they have meaning in their life, and it's incredibly rewarding and, um, and actually quite easy and very effective. So I think that that piece is crucial. And in this study, so if they looked at people who were totally abstinent in month, month 42, half had tapered off buprenorphine and half were still on buprenorphine. So many patients often ask me, you know, how long do I have to stay on this medication? And we don't have a perfect answer. It's sort of long enough. Um, probably at least a year or two before thinking about taper. Some people longer, some people lifetime. It just depends on the person. But, it, you know, this is one benchmark that at 42 months, half were still on the medication, half were off. But the strongest predictor of being totally abstinent was still being on agonist therapy. The other thing is that treatment takes time. I think we recognize this for other chronic illnesses. This is a 60-month-long study that used some, um, some modeling techniques to look at uh, the estimated days of opioid use by types of treatment. So this is a randomized trial comparing no medication to either buprenorphine or methadone. Again, showing methadone and buprenorphine, way more effective than no medication. But the thing I want to highlight is that early on in the first six months or so of treatment, people were still using five or so days out of the month. So that's a decrease from 30 days out of the month to five, which is huge. Um, and then if you stick with people, that continues to get better. So over time, people use less and less. And this is sort of what we see with other chronic illness management, right? So someone's blood sugar doesn't go from, you know, 400 to 90 overnight. It often takes time and, and several months of treatment, and we continue to sort of treat through that. And unfortunately, with addiction, we are, patients are often kicked out of care if they continue to use, even if they've made tremendous progress. And so I think that sort of binary clean, not clean um, 
I'll talk later about language, but sober, not sober, is um, really misses the nuance of disease management that, um, like many illnesses, it's not sort of a black or white thing. It's how well people are doing, how severe there is, how many days of use they've had out of the past month, that we continue to see progress. And the ultimate goal is, is abstinence and total remission, but that it takes time to reach that. The other thing that, um, that is increasingly clear from many, many studies is that treatment can effectively be delivered in general medical settings. So I think um, certainly when I was in medical school, I thought of addiction treatment as something that happened elsewhere. Like I didn't think of it as something that doctors did. It seemed like we sort of sent people somewhere else and they, they called a bunch of numbers themselves or they somehow find, found their way to these addiction treatment programs and it wasn't something that happened in the medical system. Um, and I think unfortunately we really segmented addiction care outside of the general medical system and yet what evidence has clearly shown is that not only do patients want their addiction treatment the same place they get the rest of their medical care, but it can be delivered as effectively, if not more effectively, than in specialty settings. This is a study out of Yale, um, randomizing individuals to uh, medication management with their primary care doctor versus that plus formal addiction counseling with cognitive behavioral therapy, finding no difference between the two groups. So the addition of sort of addiction counseling didn't add any benefit. And, you know, it's not, that is not to say that I don't think counseling is important. People often ask that. I I think it's just that we do counseling in primary care. This is what chronic disease management is all about, right? We talk to people about how they're doing. We talk to them about medication adherence. We talk to them about symptoms. And then actually that 20-minute session with a primary care doctor that patients trust talking about their illness and managing their medications is as effective as sort of the addition of extra counseling on top of that. And then more and more recognizing that even in the hospital setting, there are a number of things we can do to effectively treat individuals. So this, uh, the top two studies were done at a Boston Medical Center, and the, the third one was done at Yale. Um, if you think about the way we've often built the system, we, again, have made it really hard to access treatment. So um, even if we identify someone, even if we want them to get care, there's often long waiting lists. They have to sort of navigate this process on their own. And the medication is often used as sort of the carrot, that people have to jump through a number of hoops until they can get the medication. Um, you know, they have to call schedule an appointment, wait until the appointment, show up on time, sit through an hour-long intake, go to a group therapy session, then maybe they'll get buprenorphine or Suboxone. And as one patient told me, you know, if he could do all those things, if he could find a program, call it, make an appointment, show up on time, sit through all those things, he wouldn't need buprenorphine. Like, he'd be doing pretty great. But he's shooting heroin three times a day, and his life is in chaos, and he can't do those things. And so I think, um, again, we've designed this system that really works for the very few. So the top study took all comers to the general medical service um, who were presenting for medical reasons not seeking treatment and offered them methadone to start in the hospital and link directly into care. And even in a non-treatment-seeking group, 82% actually presented for follow-up addiction care if they were started in the hospital. Um, the group at BMC then randomized individuals who so did an RCT of buprenorphine um, continuation versus detox. So the detox arm got a buprenorphine taper in the hospital and then a direct referral, like, you know, three days after discharge, you go to this buprenorphine clinic and you'll be seen, which is probably most, more than many patients get. And the other group got continued on buprenorphine. So they um, weren't detoxed, they were maintained and given a prescription to last them until their appointment. The group that stayed on the medication, 72% entered into treatment versus 12% if they were detoxed. So that medication bridge is crucial to getting people engaged. A group at Yale then took this a step further and said, well, what if we do this with all comers to the emergency room? So they did a three-arm randomized controlled trial where they took, again, people just presenting the ED for an abscess or after an overdose and randomized them to either get buprenorphine with a three-day prescription to link them directly into care or to get a motivational inter intervention or a direct referral to, um, to buprenorphine treatment after the ED visit and found that that three-day prescription made a huge difference, that 78% were still retaining care a month later if they got the three-day prescription versus those that were simply referred only about a third were still retaining care.
And yet, despite all of this, I think um, many medical systems, many primary care docs really don't um, have an embrace addiction treatment as a part of their system. And, and so this has been called a monumental lost opportunity that, you know, patients with substance use disorder are much more likely to show up to their primary care doctor, to an ED, to a hospital, to their OB, to their HIV doctor than they are to specialty treatment. And so we have a real opportunity to engage people in care. In addition, um, despite the, the robust evidence about buprenorphine, there's huge access issues. So this is a 2015 study that looked at the total number of wavered physicians across the country. And despite the fact that this is a life-saving medication that can be delivered in medical settings, only 2.2% of physicians had taken the training to get the waiver. And we know that even those who take the training, very few actually go on to prescribe. If you look at a map of the U.S., about 50% of U.S. counties don't have a single prescriber in their county, so patients simply can't access treatment where they live. And even areas with good buprenorphine access, so Massachusetts has one of the highest um, densities of buprenorphine prescribers, and yet the median number of patients being treated by a prescriber is 22. So um, you guys may have known that uh, Congress recently lifted the cap, so rather than limiting the number of patients doctors could treat at 100, it was lifted to 275. Um, but I think this suggests that that will have little effect, that it's not that, you know, you need one doctor who can take care of 275 patients, but rather that patients need to access care wherever it is that they're showing up for their medical services. And Getting back to that sort of belief issue, I think, you know, why is that? And, um, and there's many reasons. Some of it's structural, that we've made this into a, an extra thing that you have to do. You have to do a waiver training. It seems, that makes it seem complicated or like one more thing on your plate. But I think also, again, that notion that um, uh, we've all been sort of indoctrinated by society, that we're members of society too, and we've been influenced by some of the sort of stigmatizing notions in society. And so simply the, the availability of a medication isn't enough to change practice, that until we sort of change some of the belief systems, it's going to be tough to really begin to redesign our healthcare system. So what does care look like currently? Well, often patients are blamed or shamed or um, scolded for their illness. So, you know, a patient with endocrinitis who's told that she's done this to herself and sometimes not even offered a valve repair because there's a, a notion that, um, you know, this is, again, the result of bad behavior. Um, and treatment looks very different. And I sometimes, um, you know, imagine what would it look like if you treated heart disease or something else this way. So imagine if you went to the ED and you're having a heart attack, and you got asked, you know, what did you eat for lunch? How much have you been exercising? Did you take your Lipitor? And if you hadn't done those things, then maybe you'd be given a list of cath labs and you could go kind of call them on your own. That, you know, we wouldn't do that, right? That would be malpractice, and yet that literally is the experience that people have when they have substance use disorder. So what could person-centered care for opioid use disorder look like? Well, it would look exactly like care that we provide for any other medical illness. So at the center would be the person and the realities of their life and the community and the people who love them. And then wherever they touch the health system, whether it's the emergency room, hospitalization, a nursing home, the pharmacy, their PCP's office, they would have access to evidence-based treatment guided by science and tailored to their, their personal needs. And so um, you guys may have seen this. This was Vivek Murthy, our former Surgeon General, sent out this pledge to all practicing physicians across the country. I never got mine. I think it's probably lost in my mailbox somewhere. But in theory, it went to your work address. But he asked all doctors to take this pledge. That was really a three-part pledge. So one, to educate ourselves to treat pain safely and effectively. Two, to screen patients for opioid use disorder and provide or connect them with evidence-based treatment. And then three, to talk about and treat addiction as a chronic illness. So simple, but I think really gets at this sort of comprehensive approach that's needed as we think about the current crisis. And then another crucial issue to mention before I turn to MJH in our last few minutes is language, that um, one of the most important points, I think, in interacting with people is 
recognizing the impact of sort of our stigmatizing uh, uh, history and, and system, and that language is really important. So if you think even about the term abuse, you know, there's no other medical illness that we use language like that for. So we don't say a patient with an eating disorder is a food abuser. Um, you know, abuse is a word that we use for sexual assault, for child assault. It actually comes from a word that means a willful act of misconduct. So to tell someone they're a substance abuser literally implies that they are to blame for their illness. And that may sound kind of just like political correctness or something, but they've actually done really interesting studies where if you take um, PhD or master's level trained clinicians and you give them a vignette where the only word that gets changed is either describing a person as a substance abuser or a person with a substance use disorder, clinicians are more likely to recommend a punitive treatment to the person described as a substance abuser. So language matters. It influences our care. Um, and using really medically appropriate terminology, I think, is crucial. So with that, I want to turn a little bit to what we've tried to do at Mass General. So I've had the great fortune of working with a team at MGH to begin to think about how do we redesign care across the system so that patients at every encounter, if you think about that sort of um, cartoon map I showed you, have immediate access to evidence-based treatment and that we really think about the healthcare system as um, a series of reachable moments, that when people come into our emergency room, come into our primary care offices, we have an opportunity to initiate treatment. And so we've begun to do that across the system with an inpatient addiction consult team so that patients in the hospital can see a team of experts just like they would see a team of cardiologists if they came in with a heart attack or with a cardiac complication. Um, and the goal really is to focus on engagement, but ideally to start treatment in the hospital, including medication treatment. We've begun integrating treatment across our primary care practices, developing teams of addiction champions in primary care that come together twice a month with an addiction specialist to talk about challenging cases and to talk about systems issues and barriers to ensure that every patient has access to medication treatment and to integrated care in primary care. We started what we call a bridge clinic, which is essentially sort of an urgent care treatment on demand model where patients can walk in and we care for them until they stabilize and are able to link into community-based care. And I'll tell you more about each of these pieces. And then we've hired recovery coaches who are like community health workers. They're people in recovery themselves who really understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of someone with this illness and are able to address all the barriers that prevent people from being able to get well, from things like needing a photo ID to be able to go to um, methadone treatment to if you have an open been warrant, it's very hard to get into care. Um, so helping people deal with legal issues, with social service issues, or just providing motivational support. So we've studied this model, our addiction consult team, when we compare um, matched patients, the so patients matched for severity of substance use. Those seen by the addiction consult team um, have a greater number of days abstinent in the month and three months after hospital discharge and a reduction in addiction severity. They also have a 25% lower 30-day readmission rate. We've so far done about 4,000 consults on almost 3,500 patients. And although today we're talking about opioids, it's important to remind everyone that actually alcohol is the number one killer. We see far more alcohol consults in the hospital than we do opioids. It's so important to keep that in mind. Our bridge clinic, again, is this really novel sort of treatment on demand model of let's make it easy for people to access care rather than hard. So patients don't need an appointment. They can walk in. They can show up. We know early on that patients, you know, they don't keep appointments. They show up three hours late or five days late. And so the bridge clinic allows them to literally just come in whatever stage they are. We've cared for almost 750 patients, and about 50% of our visits aren't scheduled ahead. So, again, and that sort of welcoming, flexible model is crucial. And we found that patients who come to the bridge clinic after their hospitalization, their 30-day readmission rate is only 10%, which is about 8% lower than, than others. 
In our primary care sites, we now have 10 recovery coaches that have spent almost 7,000 hours working with about 1,700 patients. And we found that when patients are linked to a recovery coach, they actually have a 25% reduction in inpatient hospitalization and a 44% increase in attending outpatient appointments, so attending primary care appointments, attending behavioral health appointments. So really getting people well, keeping them well in their communities. Our addiction champion teams are a mix of, um, we always have a primary care doctor, a nurse, someone from administration, ideally someone from the community, our recovery coaches, and then as many other people as want to come. But these teams meet to talk about cases, but also to talk again about sort of systems issues. Um, we've been able to waiver a number of physicians to prescribe buprenorphine. In our three health centers, we now have 38 physicians caring for about 550 patients on buprenorphine. Um, the, we come together again for these risk rounds, which are really dynamic times to talk about cases that people are worried about. And we've partnered with coalitions in the community that are addressing sort of community-based prevention approaches. Um, this month is our hashtag get wavered month. So we just started our first cohort. We are wavering all of our ED physicians to prescribe buprenorphine so that patients can start buprenorphine the day that they present to the emergency room. So um, you can follow us on Twitter, but we're starting to, trying to start a movement. It's been really exciting. I'll tell you, three years ago, I would never have thought I would see the day where all of our ED doctors were getting wavered to prescribe buprenorphine. So change happens um, and really exciting. And actually, this effort has been largely led by a very passionate group of residents who have really kind of nudged, pressured, shamed their attendings into um, getting on board. So it's been really, really exciting. And then our future directions, we are in um, the process of starting something called our Hope Clinic, which um, is a perinatal family clinic, the idea being that we'll start um, integrated treatment at the time of pregnancy for moms with substance use disorder, and then continue care through the first thousand years of life for the child. Many um, pregnant uh, pro our programs for pregnant women sort of end at the time of delivery. And, and in Massachusetts, at least, the highest rate of overdose for pregnant and parenting women is in the six to 12 months after delivery. So, you know, women, the, the bottom sort of drops out in terms of support. And so we really wanted to deliver this integrated system for the first two years of life for the kids. So this is care for mom, for baby, for partner. Um, it's medical care, psychiatric care, OB care, addiction care, um, and a dedicated recovery coach in one location. We're continuing to try to expand across all our primary care practices. We're doing a new mental program. So um, one challenge we've seen is that folks get waivered, but then actually translating the training you get in the waiver to actually caring for those first few patients can be a bit of a leap. And so trying to pair people up with peers um, that they know who are already prescribing so that they can, those first couple cases, they have some guidance. And then we started an addiction medicine fellowship. We're um, going to start with our first fellow in July. We are still recruiting. We have people interviewing for our, um, one open spot. So if you have any um, burgeoning uh, interest in, in the audience, we would love applications or in future years. It's a one-year clinical fellowship in addiction medicine. So that, I want to leave a, a few minutes for questions. I'll end with one more quote, because you probably can tell by now that I love stories and quotes. But I think um, with addiction, we often talk about enabling, that if you're somehow kind to people who use drugs, that, um, that you're doing something bad. And I think first, we often forget that even people who continue to actively use drugs have not forfeited their human rights or their right to health care, but also that people get well again when they're cared for, when they feel like they're being treated with dignity and respect. And so I think really flipping that to trying to think about how can we enable health, how can we enable people to actually get their medical care, how can we enable people not to die from overdose. So I'm very proud to call myself an enabler. And um, with that, I'd love to take questions. Thank you. Thank you. That was amazing. Oh, uh, you should go on 60 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
So I have a question for you. Yep. Um, I'm a hematologist, and one of the most problematic um, patient situations we have is for sickle cell yep. patients. Yep. And I uh, wonder if you had any experience or any yeah. thoughts on maybe putting them on uh, buprenorphine. Yeah, absolutely. We have a couple patients that we've started um, in the hospital on buprenorphine. So a couple things. One um, collaboration I forgot to mention is we are collaborating with our hematologist oncologists around both um, sickle cell patients, but also patients with cancer who have substance use disorder and are often on opioids and other substances to think about sort of care for that patient population. Yeah, buprenorphine can be a very effective pain management strategy as well. It often isn't thought of that way, but in many countries it's used for analgesia. And so even if people don't necessarily buy, consider themselves to have addiction, often just talking about the fact that um, full agonist opioids have begun causing problems in someone's life. So, um, you know, they don't have to, people don't have to identify as a person with addiction to, um, to necessarily recognize that there are problems from the medication and that buprenorphine is an alternative strategy, but it can be really effective. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I'm a palliative care nurse practitioner, and obviously we're seeing more substance use disorder and and it's a wonderful uh, you know, opportunity and a wonderful service that you offer. How do you fund it? I mean, it's hard enough to oh, yeah. how do you care? How do you fund this? Yeah. yeah, so great question. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so to get started, um, so part of this came out of our hospital strategic planning process. So when our hospital was deciding kind of what areas to focus on, um, there are a number of committees that were uh, making recommendations. And actually, at the end of the day, both the community subcommittee and the population health management committee um, recommended substance use disorder for very different reasons. The community committee, because 75% of our community members said substance use was the most important issue in their community. But the population health management group, because we, like many health organizations, are becoming an ACO, and all of a sudden we're thinking about how do we actually keep people well and keep them out of the hospital and reduce total health care costs. And when we basically made a business case that we looked at a year of general medical admissions and patients with a substance use disorder versus those with not and looked at common medical conditions of so COPD, heart failure, um, pneumonia, and found that those with substance use disorder had uh, stayed in the hospital longer than expected. They had higher 30-day readmission rates. So really painting the opposite of value in healthcare that we're spending a ton of money on these patients and yet they're not getting well. And so how do we actually think about um, shifting that to invest in things that we know will keep people out of the hospital and keep them well. So the hospital funded us initially. We do generate revenue from our service, from many of our clinical services, not our recovery coaches. Um, those are not a reimbursable service. Um, and then we continue to study sort of our financial sustainability. So we're um, just uh, going to publish a utilization study showing that actually uh, the overall initiative reduces acute care utilization. So both the total number of hospital days and also ED visits. So it's that sort of global cost argument that I think is um, more compelling than the, as we move away from a fee-for-service model, I think there's a real argument to be made. Yeah. The logistics of MAT are obviously really hard. That's one of the obstacles. Yeah. But how do you talk about urine testing? Like, what's going to happen? Is urine testing good? What's going to change this about opioid replacement in a different way? What's yeah. That? Yeah, so great question. Um, so we actually do oral, we do saliva testing um, in part because uh, our about 25% of our urine samples, even with all of the kind of quality controls that have been put into place, are not um, real. So that you know your pretest probability drops a lot when that's true. So um, people you know bringing another urine, they're adulterating their urine, and in part. Um, 
you know, this gets at a deeper issue. Sort of, many people are like, my patient lied to me. You know, that they um, they told me they weren't using, and then they were using. And um, and I think I sort of expect to be lied to. I mean, I lie. I tell a dentist I floss all the time. I don't, but I want them to like me, and I want them to approve of me, and I know I should do it. So I think we all do that. But particularly with drug use, when you know, our generally people's experience has been that when they're honest about drug use, they lose their job, lose their children, go to prison, you know, violate parole. That bad things happen to them, and so it takes time to build up the trust that I'm not going to punish you for this, but I really want to work with you to figure out what, what's the best strategy for you in your life. So I think of it like an A1C, that even though I ask someone how their glycemic control is, I still monitor their A1C to get a sense of whether or not we need to tailor therapy. Um, and so from the beginning, when we start, our, we sort of rewrote our treatment agreement to start with what, what are your goals to the patient and have them list what are the goals. And sometimes it's nothing to do with substance use. It's like, I want to get my kids back. I want to work. I want to, you know, not feel so terribly all the time. Um, and that gives you an opportunity to go back to that and say, are we, are we meeting our goals? But having it not really be about necessarily what the toxicology shows, although that's obviously one thing that you're factoring in. Um, so I think it's one tool. I think it's, you know, there's no sort of all or nothing. The other kind of... Um, icky side of urine drug testing is that a lot of um, community treatment programs sometimes get kickbacks from toxicology testing. So um, they'll recommend tons of urine toxicology testing, but they have like an in-house lab that they're generating revenue from. So always being thoughtful about ordering tests and what is our sort of clinical value of them. But I, I think it's one tool in our toolbox of getting a sense of how someone's doing. So I think maybe given yeah. the hour, we should... Great. Uh, we Thank you. And, uh, <laughs>